This is The Rock. I'm Lawrence Delalio, And with the Saracens' salary scandal dominating the domestic agenda for so long, it's about time the greatest rugby show on earth moved firmly back into the spotlight. The 2026 Nations is just days away and the opening weekend is an absolute cracker. Wales get a new era underway against Italy. Ireland and Scotland look to put a disappointing World Cup behind them. And there's a heavyweight meeting in Paris where England are up against France. Helping me look ahead to the tournament, Owen Slott is inside England's Portuguese training camp. The Times, Irish and Scottish rugby correspondents, Peter O'Reilly and Alistair Reid go head-to-head. And joining me in the studio, fresh from three days in Portugal with England, is our <laughs> resident brain box, Alex Lowe. Alex, Hello. now listen, I know that this week is a big week for you. The Kansas City Chiefs are yeah. playing their first Super Bowl for over 50 years, is for that 50 correct? 50 years. Wow. 50 years, yeah. So um, the fact that you're actually going out to Paris is somewhat of a minor miracle. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the I won't times... be having any sleep on Sunday night, I'll tell you that. 12.30am <laughs> kickoff in Paris. So. Well, listen, before we talk uh, about... Uh, the Super Bowl. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the well, the breaking news that we've heard that uh, Bristol have announced the signing of Harlequins and England tighthead prop Carl Sinclair. I mean that mm. is has been well known uh, yeah. for a while now. Um, Quinn's refused to talk about it. Uh, when we asked the question to Paul Gustard yesterday, he just said no, can't mention anything about it. But clearly, the time has come to to announce it. And you almost get the sense that when um, when you're a director of rugby or a head coach, and and you you're not able to convince or persuade a player to stay with you, that's been part of your setup for a long time. You you kind of take it personally, don't you, really? But I suppose it's it's part and parcel of of this professional game now. He'll, he'll trot out the the statement that I'm firmly focused on England and and doing my best for Harlequins for the remainder of the season. But do you think it's a surprise that he's gone to Bristol? And the the other question I'm going to ask is. Is it just something that's going to happen now? If if clubs are, are trying to work to a salary cap, there's only so many superstars you can keep. Mm. And a lot of people were saying, well, we've got Alex Dombrandt at number eight, who wants to sign a new contract. We've got Carl Sinclair at tighthead prop, who also wants to sign a new contract. But we've got to, we've got to balance the books here. And does it look like they release Carl in order to sign Alex and one or two others, maybe? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, my understanding is that, is that Dombrandt was given a good offer at Northampton a better offer at Northampton but but stayed at, at Harlequins because they'd given him a shot he felt he owed them so I don't think they've sacrificed Sinclair in order to just keep Alex Dombrandt I think when I mean as you say it's been an open secret for for a couple of months when we did ask Paul Gustard about it probably end of November December time the answer he gave about not being able effectively not being able to match what Carl Sinclair wanted and having to cut his cloth accordingly to have a big enough squad. I'm not sure quite how hard Harlequins tried to to persuade him to stay because they knew what his market value was and they knew they couldn't match it. Um, and, and Bristol had been able to match it. And if you're Sinclair, I think he, he probably feels a bit put out maybe that, that they didn't fight that hard to keep him. Mm. And it is a shame that that a club who's, who's produced a player since he was 12 and polished him and turned him into a a lion and a, and a starting England tight head can't afford to, to to keep hold of him, and and that is one of the issues that we have under the, the salary cap regulations as they are. It was the issue that effectively got Saracens into all sorts of trouble because mm. they couldn't afford to but keep. It, but all it's these also players. but it's also the issue that got Harlequins into 
a situation where they haven't been competitive at the top end of the table, where yeah. they've put all their eggs in in their England players' basket. You know, the likes of Mike Brown, Danny Kerr, yeah. Chris Robshaw, to name just a few. And I think that when those guys leave the club for for long periods of time, they've not been able to get the results that 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 you know clearly yeah. their resources deserve. And maybe they've just taken a slightly more pragmatic view with the like. I mean, although Alex Dombrand is likely to become an England international, mm. but someone like Carl Sinclair, you know, doesn't play a huge amount of rugby for for, for the club. And if, if we think that if we're right that Carl Sinclair's on five hundred grand a year at, at Bristol, which is the the the, the rumored amount, that's that's two players. That's two players that Paul Gustard can mm. sign, who will be there for the whole season. You know, and that's how he has to look at at his squad. You know, is it a shame that Harlequins can't keep a guy who could be, should be, will be the poster boy for the England team? You know, who spoke fantastically well, yeah. inspirationally actually, in, in at the World Cup about the responsibility that he feels to try and set an example to kids who've come from the estate that he'd come from and how he's looked up to Johnny Wilkinson. He wants teenagers to look up to him so that he can show them there's, you can, you don't just have to go down the wrong path. There is mm. a, you can achieve things if you set your mind to it. And he was, you know, he spoke brilliantly well. Yeah. And, and it's a shame that Harlequins are in a position where they can't, they can't have him as their poster boy. But from a practical rugby squad position, it just didn't add up to, to Paul Gustard. No, listen, and, and, it, and, it's, and it throws into question, you know, how, you know, is there a way maybe in the future where the RFU and clubs can get together, particularly with England players, yeah. and say, well, can we can we come to some sort of part funding agreement where, that, that, you know, they can stay put? And, and really, you know, if you're an England coach or if you're the RFU, is it in the best interest of the England team that Carl Sinclair stays where he is or is it in the best interest that he moves to Bristol and that's maybe well, a conversation for for another day I just want to focus on on Harlequin's win without Carl Sinclair against Saracens you know obviously they've had good news because it was a much needed win for Paul Gustard and for Quinns I think they were I couldn't believe they'd only won four out of 15 premiership games before yesterday's result and Saracens were really fairly well humbled in the end at the stoop um, in their first Premiership game since the announcement of that relegation, and I just wonder whether I mean I was there, you know, working for BT Sport, and I did see Alex Arneson and and uh, you know the rest of the co- the, the, the Saracens uh, coaching staff, and they looked they looked a little bit broken, and they admitted as much. Um, you know, they said, look, this is the first time, this has been the hardest week we, we've ever had yeah. to deal with because we know we've been relegated, um, so now things are out of our control, and. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of our best players have just walked out the door to international rugby. Yeah, it was a good week for Harlequins to play Saracens, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, it was it was ideal for for Quins who who were desperate for a win, as you say. And I I saw Mark McCall's interview pre match, and he said what he'd been saying all season about how they've they've blocked out everything that's been going on, and the players have played for each other. They knew they had to close the gap, but they knew that if they played they played for each other and, and kept things tight, then, then they'd do it. And it was a perfect storm for them this week, wasn't it? That they knew that they were now relegated. There was nothing to fight for, and the players, the experienced players, the the England players who who would have been there to keep things tight, to have set the standards and and make make everyone play for each other. They they were in Portugal, um, and you just saw someone like I thought that the last few minutes there were you know Jackson Ray of of all people is yeah. he's kind of lost. Lost his head and, and mm. the fact that the referee is telling him to go away. I can't, well, I think, I I think can't it's just that, that, that frustration, it just, isn't it? That's what I mean. It just yeah. all came to a head mm. um, this week, and 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 it might it might it may not happen again. Actually, yeah. for them, it just felt like it was it, 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 everything just suddenly 
caved yeah. in for them after after fighting it off and holding it off and thinking they were going to close the 35 point gap and all those things it just well, it I just guess, unraveled I guess, for them I guess now you know having been together and and seen some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of well, we're not being relegated and we can we can work our way up the table now actually by being relegated there's a lot of uncertainty i would imagine in that group and you know what does it actually mean for for the top players what does it mean for the overseas players what does it mean for the academy players and i think you know dare i say it that uncertainty and that doubt I mean, you wouldn't be human if you weren't questioning you know well where am i going to play next season what does it mean for me and these are these are questions and answers that saracens will have to unravel added to that it was a pretty spectacular performance by Harlequins. Um, and in particular, yeah. I thought the spine of their team, 8, 9 and 10, Don Brandt, Danny Kerr and Marcus Smith, you know, two two players who were, were omitted, well, three players who were omitted from, from the squad, but yeah. probably, you know, more, more poignantly, the likes of Don Brandt and Marcus Smith, you know, they were outstanding uh, in that performance yesterday. I think what, yeah, what would have impressed and pleased Paul Gustard was that his team smelt blood and they went and they went after them. They 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 recognised that Saracens this wasn't Saracens as, as we've known Saracens to be. They were there for the taking, and they went after them. and And you're right, and it was led by by that spine. And and, and Danny Kerr doesn't have England distractions anymore. He's not chasing an England comeback anymore. He he knows where he stands, and and it's and and it's to to try and turn things around for Harlequins. And then the other two, uh, you know, Marcus Smith might have thought he he'd have been in with a shot if England were going to pick three fly halves in their Six Nations squad because whenever they have picked three fly halves he's been the third in the last few years but but Quinns haven't been playing brilliantly and, and it's and it's impacted on him Alex Dombrandt might have looked at Billy Vunapola getting injured and thought well there isn't another big he doesn't fancy Nathan Hughes anymore is there another big heavy duty ball carrier out there no there isn't I've got a, I've got a shot here neither of them got picked and their reaction um, was was just the message that, that Eddie Jones would have wanted them to send and I thought it was it was everything that Harlequins wanted. But actually, I think the, the intent that they went after Saracens, having realised that, that, that this could be their day, was, was, was really impressive and, 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 and will give Gustard real encouragement. Time for us to, uh, to talk Six Nations and we're going to go inside the England Six Nations squad and talk to Owen Slot, who's uh, with England in Portugal. Alex uh, put in three days hard yakka and pass the baton on to Owen has the weather improved there Owen uh, you know what's going on over in Portugal yeah no the, the minute Alex left the sun came out um and uh, we've been on a beach all morning um it's a tough day's work now actually to be honest it's a bit cloudy and um I'm ho- going to go and see the England guys in um in an hour or so and hoping for a bit bit more of an insight as to what we might expect from them in uh, Paris at the weekend. Well, I was about to say, um, you know, you're going to get all the latest news. What do they let you do these days? Watch sort of 15 minutes of, of rugby netball or something or, or five-a-side <laughs> football or <laughs> has, it, has it moved on from the old days? You get to watch 15 minutes. Um, and will that give you or do you have any idea in your mind who's likely to start against France? Because obviously Eddie Jones named... What was it? A thirty-four man squad, eight uncapped players, but realistically, that the bread and butter is going to be the team, bar injuries, that finished um, the World Cup last year. The process of sort of, um, of reporting on the st- on the early part of these uh, international weeks for England is kind of piecing together little bits of information um, that you get from wherever you can, what you can see, and what you hear. That England are, are, are very, very stingy in in, in sharing you um, really what's what's going on. So. Um, 
So, so us professional journalists just have to have to do our best. Alex is very good at that, by the way. He normally knows what's going to happen before it does. And um, now I'm just doing my own amateur version of, of that uh, myself. Um, but I, I, I sort of agree with you, Lawrence. I think, um, I think Eddie named some exciting new names in his in his broader squad. But uh, the closer we get to uh, the Six Nations and England playing again, the the more it, it just appears that. He'll he'll be conservative with his changes. He, he'll hardly make any. Those that those will be mainly forced on him, like but no Billy Vinopola at number eight. He'll have to make a change there. I mean, by by still going with um, Ben Youngs and Willie Hines as his only two nines in the squad. I mean, that's a statement that if England's going to move and roll on, it's going to evolve pretty slowly rather than any sort of dynamic revolution. And so that that's what I think we're going to see played out during the week. Just a, a, a team that's pretty similar to what we saw in the World Cup. Given they got to the World Cup final and beat the All Blacks, it's not such a stupid thing to do, is it? No, it's not. And, and Alex, I, I come to you. I mean, I, I guess there is a an option to move Courtney Laws into the back row uh, as, mm. a, as a six, where he's been playing very effectively for Northampton. And, I, and I'm building on what Owen was talking about. Obviously, you know, what, who's who's the starting nine? Who's on the bench? And and also some some selections around twelve, thirteen as well for for Eddie Jones. Yeah. So uh, I thought you were saying it's about at the moment sort of piecing together what you the direction you think they're going in um, and, and to give an example of that Saturday afternoon England training session in, in Portugal the first 15 minutes of it was open for the media in those 15 minutes the only player who wasn't training with the squad was Anthony Watson who was in trainers but he was working on on uh, on skills passing off his left hand and taking the high ball so you stand there watch that thinking well is that is that preparation for him starting at fullback and the reason you think that is because one of the the two thoughts that, that's swirling around at the moment is that Eddie Eddie might be angling towards moving Elliot Daly onto the left wing and as you say angling towards playing uh, one of his more dynamic locks in the back row because he's got to reshape his back row with, with no Billy Vunipola uh, if he was to play Laws at six which I think is more likely than Itoji because in the past he's talked about Itoji being the the, uh, the most powerful scrummaging lock that, that he has available. So he'd be more likely to, to pack down with Courtney at six. Then it becomes, does he play Tom Curry at eight and, and Sam Underhill at seven? Does he play Lewis Ludlam at eight, who's played a lot of number eight? Uh, or Ben Earl, who's who's probably been the pick of, of all those back row mm-hmm. players in, in, in the Premiership this season. I would imagine, as it stands, that he won't tinker too much with his midfield, so it'd be Ford Farrell. To Elangi, I think if Slade was fit, that might be, that might have been a different decision. Mm. But I don't see him, don't see him starting Jonathan Joseph out there. So, yeah. but but as, as Sotty said, it's it's a case of just trying to to read the tea leaves a little bit and, and work out try just try and get an understanding of of the pattern that England want to play and how they're looking at, at evolving the team. And th- those are the kind of the questions that are being asked and the, some of the clues that are around at the moment. Slotty, I'm fascinated by the kind of dynamic of the England squad in terms of you know. The atmosphere, the, the the feeling in the camp, and I, and I say that for two reasons. They looked a pretty tight bunch in in uh, Japan uh, post World Cup, um, or, or pretty much during the World Cup. But as we know, a lot's happened in rugby since then, particularly. Um, and you know, the, the whole Saracens Gate scandal. I just wonder whether that's um, is easy to put to bed for this group of players. I know Eddie Jones talked about being able to you know bring this the squad together, but do their friendships? Um, that they've created over a number of years, months, whatever it might be. Does the, do those friendships supersede, you know, what's happened 
to the to Saracens and, and the group of players off the field, uh, on the field. And I'm just fascinated to see what whether it has any detrimental effect on, on England's preparations for the opening game against France. I think I think it'll be over the course of the next few weeks that we see what impact, it, if any, it's it's going to have on the England team. Uh, initially, I thought that the that the other players, the non-Saracens players, would be would be um, arriving at, at, at the England camp with um, loaded up with frustration and anger at sort of uh, what's happened over previous years. But 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 now that Saracens have had, have had um, such swinging penalties, now they're going to be in the championship next year. I I almost wonder if there's an element of sympathy in there as well. I mean, they they are good friends. Um, there's there's no doubt about that. Um, so at what at what point does that switch the other way? Uh, and I think um, I think you can't get away from the fact that um, Owen Farrell in particular is the towering character and personality over this group of players, and uh, and so it would it it takes quite something for for someone to 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 turn on that or or to express their frustration. I, I think I'm really guessing, Lawrence, because it, it, it's such a unique situation. Um, I mean, you, you never had anything like that, I don't suppose. To, 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 well, to do we, had that, we had that situation where we all went on strike. You know, not everyone was in agreement with that, let me tell you. So uh, there was a little bit of, um, uh, you know, difficulty in, in resolving that situation. But again, that was... That, that sort of pulled us all together and made us feel a lot stronger, really, in, in that sense. But uh, no, I'm, ju- I'm just think, um, fascinated to see the dynamic that's going on in the England team. Is it, a, is it a welcome relief that they're back in international camp and they can just forget about what's been going on, uh, at least park it for a, for a few weeks, months? Uh, and that's probably, uh, certainly for a lot of people, that, that's probably quite welcome. I think it, it definitely is a, a welcome relief. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and I, I think quite a lot of it um, will probably depend on on how those Saracens players have, have played it. I mean, in public, they've they've um, kept very sturm, and they've just said, "Oh, we don't want to talk about don't want to talk about our, our our problems and our relegations. We want to talk about our rugby." And and well, that's you know that's their divine right if they want to do that. But to their team, to their England teammates, I think there has to be, and and I think that's from what we were gathering. That's possibly already happened. There has to be. Um, a time when they sit down and they say, "Listen, let's just talk about it. This is what happened. We, this is how we feel about it. Ask us questions about it." There has to be complete transparency with their teammates. Yeah, that that happened on on Friday, we believe, in the um, in the dining room at Browns, which is which is their training base. It's not not a very luxurious place, um, and they all met together without any without any of the coaches for about half an hour. Uh, we asked Johnny May about it, and the tone. Of, I mean, he said what I expected him to say, which is we're all fine, everything's great, we're all united. But the way you said it made you feel that, that, that what Sotty said there about almost element of sympathy is, is probably pretty close to, to the truth. I think they realise that they need, they need the Saracens players yeah. to be on, you know, to, to be a, a key core part of this team and, and not to feel like there's any division. And it, and it almost fell, well, the way that Johnny May described it, it almost fell to the others to say, you know, listen, there's no, there's no bad blood here. We're united as, as an England team. Uh, yeah, and so they should be. And listen, they, for me, they they go into this uh, Six Nations Championship as as favourites because they made it to the World Cup final. Alex, let's just talk about their opponents in in round one. France clearly they're going to rely on on youth. The oldest player being mm. thirty. A lot of new faces in the team. New captain. A lot of the old guard been left out. Sean Edwards, new coach. Uh, lots of new faces in the coaching setup as well. I mean, how do you think they're going to shape up? And 
you know, is Stuart Barnes right when he argued in, in the Sunday Times that, that this opening game in Paris, similar to last year when Wales had to start their campaign, could go a long way to, to deciding the championship? I think he is right. I, mean, I, I, I agree with him. Uh, I think England are the, are the strongest team in this, in this tournament and if they don't win it, then it'll be a disappointment given what they've just achieved out in Japan. I think France are the most exciting team in the tournament in the sense that they've built, they put together a really young squad, um, inexperienced but full of, full of attacking potential based at clubs who, who love to attack. Mm. They've won the last two under-20 world championships and a lot of those players are, are coming through. I had a sit-down uh, the, other, the other day with Sean Edwards, which we put it in the paper today, and he said that the, the, the biggest job in the, in the squad for, for France-England is his job. Because he's he needs to impose a, a, a sort of a, a defensive discipline on that team. I mean, he's, he, he he knows or how just a discipline. Well, or, 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 yeah, just a discipline. I mean, he, you know, he was on the other end of it in 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 the World Cup, and, mm. and France were all over Wales yeah. that first half, and then shot themselves in the foot. And and Sean was was talking about it's the close games that, that France need to start winning yeah. that, that they haven't been winning, and it just feels like there's a there's a breath of fresh air in French rugby. There's a new coaching team with new ideas, and someone like Sean Edwards could could be critical, because if he can give them the foundation in defence, then what they can achieve going forward is, um, it, it could be unstoppable, because they are, they just they just play with with a freedom of, of youth and, and ambition, and, and I, so I, I'm not, whether that all comes together on day one is, uh, it, it might do, but it probably won't, but they are starting to build a, a team through to the next World Cup, and, and they could be one of, the, one of the really fascinating stories of the next four years. Guys, I'm going to ask you two questions, uh, Owen, before, before you go. Who's the most important player for England uh, in this particular campaign? And who do you think will, uh, across all the teams, will, will be the player that, that, that will be most talked about at the end of the competition or you'd like to see as the most talked about at the end of the competition? I think that the, England, as their success and, and how they are as a team, their culture, if you like to use the modern word, is about Owen Farrell. He's, he's front and centre, particularly now that the Saracens thing has happened. You know, that was the way before, but now, now it is even more so. It's up to him to galvanise the team and to, to make sure that everything's right, as, as well as to lead the team on the field. So, uh, yes, I, I do feel that um, he's the most important player for England. Um, in terms of the, the, the most... The most exciting new player, or, the, or who I'm looking forward to seeing in, in the in the whole tournament, is um uh, is Antoine Dupont, the uh, the French scrum half. Uh, he really started to look um, really exciting in the World Cup, and if France are to ignite, as uh, Barnsley says, and, uh, uh, and and I sort of think there's certainly potential for that, then he's he, he's the man who's who's going to be um, setting them alight. Except everything that Sotti says about about Owen Farrell, and and, and he's the the kingpin of, of that team, everything kind of revolves around him and, and the, the standards he sets and, and the atmosphere he creates. But the back row, I'm really interested in because as we sit here, we've just had highlights of the Wasps game on television and, and, and if Jack Willis can't get into this group of young back row players, then you know they've got to have a hell yeah. of a group well, of and, young and, back row and, players. And Don Brandt and Simpson and, and Willis and, and so many quality players, Nathan yeah. Hughes. Who, who... And, and so of, of, of the, the pick of them, we don't quite know yet how what that balance is going to be, how Eddie Jones is going to play his number eight and uh, and seven. We think he might, yeah, we might, he might go for a big ball carrying six. So, so I'll pick Ben Earl for me. I don't know if he's going to start yet, but I just think he's been outstanding for Saracens, winning turnovers, uh, tough. 
I sort of watched him train, or I watched him warm up. Um, just not not that, not that tall, but really stocky, powerful, quick over the ball. I, I'd like to see him break through for England and and for the championship because I, you know if, if he can come and push Curry and Underhill to play to raise their game, which was already at, at extraordinary levels in the World Cup. Then, then it'll actually giving the, the back row for England looks like it could be a real power force going forward. You know, for me, it, it, may, it may be an unusual choice for a lot of people, but uh, I think Ben Youngs still holds the key to uh, to how England play. Um, I, I do think they'll start with Ben Youngs, um, and the Ben Youngs that played against Australia and New Zealand, uh, you know, is, is is absolutely world class. And, it, and it's interesting because it's, it's been a big call for him to to be moved aside and, and bring on, mm. you know, new nines. And clearly, you know, he's a he's a quality player playing in a in a club side that's not going so well. But he he has been a player that's that's risen to the occasion uh, when he's been asked to do so. And uh, I don't think there's there's been a time when his position is is been questioned more probably than it has been right now. So. Uh, you know, if he goes well, which I'm anticipating he will do, given that he's up against one of the best nines in the world, I think England could could also go well throughout the championship. I think I'd say across the championship, um, I would have been excited to see Finn Russell because he's been playing so well for Racing, and and you want him, you'd want him to do it, you know, to ignite Scotland. Yeah. We may have to wait for that, but I'll, I'll say Vakatawa in in that French oh, he's incredible, team. He's it? just incredible, and and he's you know, he's he's the kind of player that if Sean Edwards can get that defensive solidity. He can just ignite things, and uh, and he's, he, he can be impossible to stop. So, I guess he, he's the one who could really catch the eye over the next two months. Right, time to talk about one of the big games at the weekend: Ireland, of course, against Scotland. And I'm delighted to say I've got Peter O'Reilly and Alistair Reid joining us. Peter, if I could start with you first with Ireland, it's, it's a, a new era for for them and for Andy Farrell, who takes overall charge. Yeah. What would you see as his priorities? I mean, it's it's an opportunity for him to do something that he's never done before. But what do you think are the priorities for Ireland in this campaign? He and Mike Cat, his attack coach, especially, have to put some sort of a stamp on the way that Ireland play, uh, move things on a bit. In the uh, the fallout from the from Ireland's very you know poor World Cup, it emerged that at the end of last year's Six Nations that Joe Schmidt and the senior players got together and said, you know, well, what do we need to do here? Should we continue with what we're doing and try and do it 10% better? Or do we start innovating? Do we, do we change the way we play? Might maybe develop our attack a bit more? From what I understand, the players were in favour of doing some of the more sort of unstructured stuff that has worked well under Stuart Lancaster at Leinster. But the decision of the management in the end was that they kind of stick with what had been successful in 2018. And I think there's, a, there's an onus on, on Farrell now to, to move things on. There's a, you know, the, the post-World Cup hangover is, is gone at this stage. There's a bit of excitement over here because there's, there's a sense that, you know, he might, that Farrell might make a few changes in selection, bring in a few players on, based on the, the form, their form in Europe. So there's real excitement about the team that's going to be announced tomorrow. He's doing a bit of a Gatlin and announcing early. But he can't bring in too many new players because he hasn't had that many class contact hours. He's lucky in that he plays Scotland first up. And most you know the most recent outing against them in Yokohama was very successful. So there would be an element of let's do the same thing again that we did to Scotland. But maybe we were hoping to see some signs of a development of Maybe a bit more of a, um, an adventurous style of play, maybe a bit more offloading, that sort of thing. So, Peter, just cutting straight to the chase, you know, in terms of moving things on, 
uh, will John Cooney get the nod at nine? That's the thing that all Ireland supporters and, and elsewhere have been asking the question. Conor Murray, obviously, has been an absolute legend for, for Irish rugby, but he's not necessarily playing his best rugby at the moment and not necessarily playing behind a, a Munster team that are playing their best rugby. So surely, if there is a time to pick John Cooney, it, it's got to be at Lansdowne Road in the opening game. Yeah, yeah there's a clamour for, for um for Cooney's inclusion, he's the public choice because there was real kind of dissatisfaction with the fact that Joe Schmidt sort of stuck with players who were weren't showing their 2018 form, and uh, one of the guys who's in the firing line is Murray. Um, the issue really is Lawrence is that, um, uh, that Andy Farrell has lost two uh, guys from the spine of his team in terms of Rory Best retiring and Rob Carney just not being selected, um, and I think he's looking at. at uh, Picking Kalen Doris at number eight, so that's another change in the spine. Yeah. So I would, my guess is that if you ask Johnny Sexton, you know, would you like a new scrum half? Uh, he'd probably prefer to play with the guy that he's, you know, that he's played with for the last, of the last decade. So I think the popular choice would be Cooney, but the pragmatist in Farrell will probably put Cooney on the bench and give Murray another shot just for this to try and get the win to be, be sure of getting the win. Yeah, I think you're probably right there. You might have to settle for a, for a spot on the bench. Uh, Alistair, if I can uh, talk Scotland, um, talk about disappointing World Cup campaigns. I just want to ask you the question. Do you think that they've got the squad to bounce back in this Six Nations? And obviously we can't not talk about Finn Russell and, and, and what's happened there and the kind of start to the campaign. Um, he's obviously been suspended for one game only and it remains to be seen whether he'll rejoin the squad for the for the Calcutta Cup match. I certainly hope, he, and every rugby fan hopes he does, but not the, not the greatest start for Scotland already without a ball being kicked. Yeah, well, I suppose you say we've, we've got a, a calamity in early this this year. Uh, yeah, an absolutely appalling beginning. Uh, I, I mean, if there was one player in the squad that you would not want to lose, it's Finn Russell. He's, He's the guy who makes Scotland tick, who makes things happen, who, who brought them almost to victory against England at Twickenham last year, and it really is a bit of a disaster. And Alistair, um, am I am I am I to sorry to cut across you? Am I to sort of read into that that there's still a hangover from from their sort of quite public disagreement at half time in the Calcutta Cup match last year, and that was obviously not repaired during the World Cup? Is there, a, or, or is that maybe over reading it too much? Oh no! I think that's a very fair interpretation. I mean, I was I was, I was talking to, to, to Finn over in Paris just over a week ago, um, ten days ago, and he was he was talking quite openly about feeling that being out of the Scottish bubble, um, and you know, there's a bit of a family thing there because his father was sacked by by the SRU. He feels a little bit bolder about standing up to authority, and uh, I'm not sure that refusing to leave a bar is quite the way to do it, but. Uh, <laughs> But but yeah, he's a more confident individual. And the the, the big irony about uh, about this is that in many ways he mirrors exactly the kind of guy that Gregor was, uh, Gregor Townsend was twenty years ago. Mm. And you, you know, you read Gregor Townsend's autobiography, and there's there are many episodes of taking coaches to task and and standing up for himself and and and, and believing that you you know he as a player could read the game. As well, if not better than a, than a coach. So, yeah, there, there, there are bridges to to be repaired there, uh, and it has to be done. I understand that Finn really does want to come back in, um, I, he, and you know, some somebody, and probably it has to be Gregor, has to has to you know start the kiss and make up process because yeah. you know without him, Scotland are, are, are really in a bit, a bit of bother at the moment. And 
past couple of World Cups, they've, they've, they've had a bit of renewal in the, in the following Six Nations. I think in 2012 and 2016, they, they, they found a bit of form with a wave of new guys coming in. They've lost quite a few people like John Barkley, Tom, Tommy Seymour and, and Greg Laidlaw, of course. Uh, but there's there's absolutely nothing fresh uh, coming in, and that's that's a big big worry for Gregor Town. Yeah, sure. If we go straight to the game, I mean, Peter, where, where do you think the game will be won? I mean, on the, I mean, is it off the back of of the you know wonderful performances that we've seen with Leinster this season, both in domestically and in Europe? Do they just kind of follow that template and add on a little bit of extra from from the guys that that come into the team? If you visualise the Leinster that are uh, lethal from five metres out, you know, from uh, from Heineken Cup games and um, that sort of thing, yeah, I can see them going after Scotland pretty much in the way that they went after them in in, in Yokohama, to be honest. And it's suppress uh, the opposition and then, you know, depending on, on what sort of a day we get, then you'd hope that there's a, there's a su- suggestion that with someone like Rob Carney moving out of the team and Jordan Lama, Maybe moving into 15, and then you uh, you have guys like Gary Ringrose in super form, Jacob Stockdale getting a bit of confidence back, maybe Will Addison even coming into the picture as well. That there are guys there that could drive. They're given the license to to play, you know, in in unstructured situations rather than to play the percentages, and that's the exciting thing. But to begin with, it's you know, it's a it's a Six Nations game on the first of February, so. You know, it's about. Um, I suppose Ireland would back their pack to uh, to do a number on Scotland again. And Alistair, I mean, I'm assuming Adam Hastings will get the nod at ten in place of Finn Russell, and he's been going very well for Glasgow this season. Can they win uh, away in Dublin? And what would you see constituting success for Scotland this season? For Scotland, and the, you know, since the turn of the century, a, a mid-table finish is success. Um, yeah, they, they, they can win in, in in Dublin. They can really upset the odds as they they did that um, ten years ago. But that was the last time they did it. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, Adam Hastings will have to play the game of his life. Um, he has been in good form on occasions this season. He's also been a bit inconsistent and and, and dropped off. Yeah, it's one of those. It's almost like uh, you know the mantra whenever Scotland go against New Zealand, they say, "Yeah, we can do it if absolutely everyone plays the the best game of their life." And it's getting close to that when you look at what what Leinster have been doing recently, and that's going to be the core of the Irish team, I assume, can be done. But I, I, I mean, losing Finn Russell and then and like, that, that, they've also lost that bit of spark with Darcy Graham. They got a couple of tries last year against England. He's out as well. So it will be very much a back to the wall number if it's if it's going to be done at all. And Peter, finally, the final word with you, uh, Andy Farrell's New Ireland squad team. What are you expecting in terms of their finish uh, at the end of the competition? Traditionally, uh, Ireland struggle in even numbered years uh, because that we always play England and France away in those uh, in those years. So um, I think the feeling over here is that England are the best team in the competition. Uh, France, perhaps the team with the greatest potential, but maybe not for this season. Top half finish, I'd say, would would be seen as um, as a pretty decent start by Farrell. But or the other way of looking at it would be you have to win your three home games and show a little bit of a development in terms of uh, in terms of style, in terms of adventure, and um, yeah, that sort of unstructured game. Now, obviously, it's you know it's the middle of winter, but. Um, 
we'll see what sort of conditions we get. But that would be something that, that supporters and probably the players themselves are looking for, a little bit more licence to play. Well, gentlemen, thanks for your time. Really appreciate that. Very much looking forward to that fixture in round one. And we'll get some react perhaps after the weekend. Thank you very much indeed. So the early kickoff on Saturday, the 1st of February, sees Wales host Italy at 2.15. And Alex, uh, Wayne Pivak takes charge of Wales for the first time in the Six Nations. Um, they were Grand Slam winners last year. Um, they were Grand Slam winners, I think, the year that Warren Gatland took over. Um, so he's got a, certainly a hard act to follow. Um, I mean, where do you see them? And, and can, they, can they achieve something like that again in, in this, you know, opening tournament for him and his new team I, I'd be surprised if they if they came straight in and won the Grand Slam with Wales I do think he's got an incredibly tough act to follow because you look at 12 years with Gatland and, and Sean Edwards and, and how they they delivered an unprecedented era of success for Wales winning was it four Six Nations titles three Grand Slams two World Cup semi-finals. That is a tough act for, for Wayne Pivac to follow. So if he comes close to competing for the title this year, I think he'll have, he'll have done well. I, I think, you know, we talk about, I talked to Peter there about, about Ireland trying to move their game on under Andy Farrell. And I think Wayne Pivac, what will be interesting is that he, he, he's come from a Scarlets team mm. who, you know, he won the, the, the Pro 14 title playing to some of the most electric attacking rugby. And you just wonder whether that, that's where he wants to try and get the Wales team too, but you, those things don't happen overnight. So I think there'll be an expectation in Wales that Wales will start playing as the Scarlets had been playing. But actually, it's the foundations need to be in place first. And can they? You know, can Byron Hayward be as effective as, as Sean Edwards was yeah. in in um, in being uh, the new defence coach? And and um, actually, Ben Kay made a really good point. I thought on Saturday's paper about Sam Warburton and coming in as, as the breakdown coach and, and trying to change the way that, that Wales target the breakdown mm. and, and instead of playing it he was Ben was saying is it he'd spoken to Sam about um instead of taking like a team approach, so either saying, right, we're going to attack everything or stand off for ten minutes and just string everyone out in in a line, that that Warburton has been coaching them on how to read the clues for when to go in, yeah. which makes it harder for teams to, to play against them because they don't quite know whether they're going to have to compete or not on the floor. So I think there's a lot of unanswered questions about about Wales, which makes it obviously really interesting. Yeah. But you don't know, you know how how soon can Sam Warburton impose that that new sort of approach to the breakdown? Can Byron Haywood be as effective running their defence as Sean Edwards has been? And how soon can Wayne Pivac start to evolve the attacking game? And you know they've only been together for a couple of weeks. All these teams have only been mm. together for a couple of weeks. So I, I suspect it'll be evolution. Yeah. Rather than revolution, but I guess, I, guess the, I guess the bonus for them, if there is a bonus, and you know, not disrespecting Italy, but to have you know Italy at home in your opening game, you know, and I'm fascinated to see how um, Stephen Jones is able to evolve, you know, post Rob Howley, you know, he, he came in in difficult circumstances, slightly controversial during the, the World Cup, and I just wonder, you know, they had a good run in the World Cup, they got of course to the semi-finals. So I just wonder whether it's going to be the same again in terms of the faces or, you know, clearly they've got the options around people like Reese Webb, who's come back from Toulon. Uh, you know, will he start? Uh, well, it's in- the same scrum half conversation as Ireland have got, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it, who, who plays? Reese Webb you know, took, took the money in, in Toulon and, and sacrificed a World Cup mm. is now available. But Gareth Davis has been sensational for Wales in the last two years while, while Webb's been in the south of France. So... Yep. You know, there's a difficult decision there between the perhaps the, the popular choice and the returning, the, the returning superstar. 
That'll be an interesting yeah. And then, of course, the, uh, the, the wonder kid, uh, Reece Samet, 18 years old, unbelievable talent. You know, Josh Adams on the other side, who, unbelievable talent. You know, if they can get the ball, you know, if, they, if they decide to go with those two mm. and just really give it, a, give it a go, can they get the ball to them with, obviously, injuries and problems in the centre? Yeah, that, that's an interesting selection, because I think Italy up first helps the selection of, of Reece Samet. And it sounded like, at the Six Nations launch last week, it sounded like Wales... We're going to we're edging towards George North at outside centre, mm. which again would leave a, a wing space for for Reece Summit, who, you know, he's been he's been one of the the, the breakthrough probably the breakthrough player of the Premiership. Mm. He scored tries throughout and out pace, but he's he's also done more than that. Like he's more than just a speedster who's catching people by surprise. His angles are running, his handling, his his offloading, bringing other people into the game is you know it shows immense potential. And it's a big call playing an eighteen year old in the Six Nations, mm. but. I would, especially with Italy at home. The question then, as you say, is can they get can they get the ball wide enough to to get these guys in, involved? If you've got North outside centre, that's less likely to happen. I mean, it's an interesting start for Wales, isn't it? They've got yeah. they've got Italy at home, and then of course Ireland away, second game, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of Irish players who will remember. That what happened to them last year in the Six Nations, where Wales just bullied them into into submission, really. And I just want to talk about Italy, probably not for too long, because I really fear for them this year. Mm. And the only reason I say that is because they've got a new coaching setup. They they go away to Wales in that first game in round one. They then go away to France in the second round. And you know the tournament is about momentum. And when you've got two away games, a bit like England, if you don't get off to a winning start, mm. it, it can really be quite problematic for you. So, uh, any chance they can avoid the wooden spoon this year on Scotland? Mm. Um, I, I think that'd probably be the game that that decides it. I mean, for, for probably the last four or five years, we've all gone into the Six Nations thinking Scotland are looking like they're they've got a chance to finish top half based on how they've done in the previous autumn, and and they and they've really disappointed. Um, but actually, this year, I think that's probably the the game that'll decide who, who who comes last. I think Italy. I I agree with you about Italy. You know, Franco Smith has come in from the from the cheaters, mm. but Conor O'Shea. I mean, Andy Farrell wanted Mike Cat because he wanted his ideas, and he was talking about that. This is a guy who's who, who sees the game so well and it's really intelligent, full of ideas. You know, he couldn't impose any of those ideas really with Italy because because no. there's no Italy, platform. There's no no there's platform, no... and and the, the the skill level just isn't. Isn't there? Um, they have. They do have some play. I mean, yeah. I mean, um, we're, we're seeing a we're seeing a sort of a a steady improvement from Benetton uh, in you know yeah. domestically, and I guess the question is, can that trans can that in, you know improvement in results transfer itself to the international stage? And the feeling is probably not as quickly as Italy would like. Yeah, they don't seem to have their fullback Minotti is a, a decent player, and of course Jake Pelledri is. Is a fantastic player who, whenever you watch him, whenever I watch him play for Gloucester, I slightly wonder what Eddie Jones was yeah. was doing, not not getting him involved with England because he's exactly the kind of heavy duty power carrier that, that England like, and and he's a you know he'll be huge and he could probably take over the mantle from from Parise as mm. a, as the bat and, and Zani as the bat row talisman for them, but he can't do it on his own. You know yeah. they just they just don't have quite the quality yet, and I, I fear for them. This year, I fear for you know it's difficult for Franco Smith to come in as an interim coach, having played this kind of bold attacking rugby with with the cheaters on on hard grounds in South Africa, and try and do the same with Italy. And we always finish with our god or goddess of the week. Um, Alex, it's been quite a momentous couple of weeks for you. You've, <laughs> you're looking uh, refreshed after a couple of days in Portugal, but you're anything but. I'm sure with the 
with this incredible uh, sort of Saracen story that's broken uh, yeah. over the last couple of months. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I'm happy to start myself, Go really. On, and, uh, and it might be a slightly uh, unpopular choice, but... Uh, the uh, the salary cap audit manager Andrew Rogers, I think, <laughs> for me deserves uh, a little bit of a, a, a shout out because uh, he's had a thankless task. I think not just over the last few weeks, but actually over the last few years, and he has had a loaded gun uh, for several years, and he's actually not been able to fire it. He's known exactly what's been going on, and he's not really had the authority or the mandate to to actually do anything about it. And uh, he's now trying to sort of answer a lot of questions that have remained unanswered for quite some time. So. I think uh, if if you and I haven't had much sleep over the last couple of weeks, <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine that he's um, he, he's running on empty. So I think he, uh, as the uh, Premier Rugby salary cap uh, man, working on his own uh, for the best part of the last 12 years or however long it's been, deserves to be our God of the Week. Well, I'll go on the field, but not unrelated to the to, to the stoop and the game where which you spoke about earlier, where, where Saracens it just sort of hit the buffers and, and everything began to unravel. But one of the reasons it began to unravel was because two of the players who'd been overlooked by England delivered exactly the kind of performance that Eddie Jones would have probably told them to go and deliver. Mm. You know, Marcus Smith has been in and around the England set-up but has been leapfrogged now by Jacob Umanga. And Alex Dombrent was part of the England World Cup training camp and at a time when they don't have Billy Vinopola, Eddie Jones has chosen to go away from the, the big I like it. You've gone, with, you've gone with a god and a goddess. I'm so, impressed. <laughs> so uh, so I, I'll pick... <laughs> I'll pick Don Brandt because I thought he was immense on Sunday and mainly because it's exactly the kind of reaction that you want from a player who's on the fringes, who's got a point to prove. They didn't, he didn't sulk, he didn't feel down. He went the other way and, and sent a pretty strong message out to Portugal to Eddie Jones. So. Well, there you have it. My thanks to Alex Lowe, as well as uh, Owen Slot, Peter O'Reilly, and of course, Alistair Reid. There'll be a special Women's Six Nations edition of The Ruck on Thursday. And then we'll have all the news and views from the opening weekend of the Six Nations next Monday. Make sure you never miss an episode. Subscribe now via Acast, iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.